missed you guys last week. I want to thank Shannon for doing a great job of uh, taking care of class and going through that workbook or worksheet. I hope you found it informative and helpful. Kind of get a handle on what Second Samuel is all about. I, I like what Shannon said, and that was that was pretty good. Did you come up with that on your own? What's that? The the one about First Samuel being rated G, and Second Samuel is rated R. <laughs> First Samuel has historic accounts. Sometimes we call them Bible stories that you can tell your kids. Uh, not much in Second Samuel is anything you'd want to talk to your children about uh, at bedtime. Uh, like some of the other things, but uh, it's a, it's history. It's all history. Well, that looks like an awful small word. Can you see that? I didn't realize I made those so small. We're, you can't hear a word I'm saying? Oh, <laughs> it sound good. Is really, it sound, sounds good. Okay. All right. Keep Charles in your prayers. He's not feeling good this morning. He's usually back there running a the booth. So, Does the text tell us why the young Amalekite lied about killing Saul? Because by this time, Saul is dead. Jonathan is dead. Remember, Samuel's dead. These guys are gone. And this young Amalekite comes in from the battle, and David's wanting news, and he tells him about Saul's death. But what does he tell him about Saul's death? Says he killed him. Did he kill him? He did not kill him. How did Saul die? Killed himself. So this young man takes it upon himself to say, uh, I killed Saul and here are his, what did he bring David? The crown. Brought him the crown. So do we know why he lied about killing Saul? He may have that that's the thing that's what okay does is that what he was doing that for to us reading it that might seem like the obvious answer but I just wanted to point out <clears throat> this is one of those things that that you have to surmise because the text doesn't tell us we're just left to why did this kid lie about that I mean after all there are some people who are compulsive liars they just lie because they're they're compelled to do it for whatever reason All right. So we could come up with the most ingenious answer and we still wouldn't know if it was the truth or not because the text doesn't tell us. It just tells us what he did. It doesn't tell us why. Uh, I like to make points like that sometimes so we don't go too far. David's lament. It's called a dirge, a lament. It's recorded in Chapter 1 of Second Samuel, the latter part of the first chapter. But where else is it recorded? And it's written there in the text where else it's recorded. Anybody catch that? Chapter 1, look at verse 18. <clears throat> the book of, man I can't talk. The book of Jasher. Hey, look at that. Somebody knows me. It's recorded in the book of Jasher. Uh, 
Is that one of the minor prophets? It's not in the Bible, is it? So why is it mentioned here? It was a history book. It was a legitimate history book. And the writer of 2 Samuel recognized it here and said, this event is recorded here, but it's also recorded in this other book. It's not an inspired book. It's not supposed to be in the Bible, but it existed. And so the writer is telling us these events, this dirge, is recorded here, but it's also recorded in the book of Jasher. There are other books that are mentioned in the Bible that are not inspired books, but it doesn't mean uh, they didn't exist. They, they existed, they were historical, and they were legitimate sources of information. So that's why we're reading that here. Pardon me. Where did David set up shop? Or... As we might put it, where did he make his capital? And how did he know to go there? What's the name of the town? Is it Jerusalem? Not yet. The name of the place was Hebron. In chapter 2. You see it there in the first verse. Hebron. But why did he go to Hebron? All right. So David asked God, right there in the first verse of the second chapter, David inquired of the Lord saying, shall I go up to one of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, go up. And David said, well, where? And God said, go to Hebron. This is a pattern of David's. If you look back through the text of 1 Samuel and this one as well, you'll see him often asking God, what do I do now? What should I do? Here's a situation. I'm not going to. Decide on my own, Lord, what do you want me to do? And God will always give him instruction. He never leaves him without instruction. Did God ever leave Saul without instruction? Yes. Why did he do that? Saul <laughs> did not listen when he got instruction. So God says, I'm, all right, you're on your own, bro. That's not a quote. <laughs> but that's, that's, that's what happened. Next review question here. Who did Abner set on the throne of Israel? This is also in chapter 2. Ishbosheth. This is why you should never talk with your mouth full. Because you might have to pronounce a Hebrew name. Ishbosheth, one of Saul's sons. Was there another son that will figure prominently in David's life? Yes, and he's mentioned there as well. Mephibosheth. Ishbosheth and Mephibosheth. All these names meant things, uh, they weren't just making up syllables. So Abner set him on the throne, but wait a minute. Who are Abner and who is Asahel and who is Joab? Who's Abner, first of all? He was the commander of Saul's army. So Saul is dead. Abner is still a prominent figure in Israelite leadership and politics. And so he's so powerful that he's the one who sets Ishbosheth on the throne. But who's Asahel? What's that? 
He was not David's commander, but he was a brother to David's commander. Who was David's commander? Joab. Joab was David's commander, and Asahel was his brother. Tell me something about Asahel. He's a fast runner. You may recall Abner <coughs> comes, well, you can read about it there. Verse 12 of second chapter. Abner, the son of Ner, went out from Mahanaim to Gibeon with the servants of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul. And Joab, the son of Zeruiah, the servants of David, went out and met him by the pool of Gibeon. They sat down at one side of the pool and the other on the other side of the pool. And this is where the young men got up, 12 from each side grabbed each other by the head and thrust each other through so they all fell down dead there. There was a skirmish, a battle. Uh, a bunch of the Israelites were killed, but the only ones of, of the Judeans who died were those uh, 12. So Abner's fleeing the scene. Abner, who had been Saul's commander, is now fleeing the scene. And what happens? Asahel fast, swift-footed Asahel pursues Abner, and Abner looks back and he says, is that you, Asahel? Yeah, it's me. He said, you better stop. I don't want to have to kill you. And uh, he wouldn't stop, so he killed him. And so you see the political intrigue. You see the, the mess that, that they're in. I want to make mention of it again. God had been the king of Israel. And they wouldn't listen to him then. You get to the end of Judges, and what does it say twice in the end of Judges? Every man did what was right. Where? In his own eyes. And then you get into Samuel, 1 Samuel. And they're coming to Samuel, and they're saying, we want a king. Why? Why do they want a king? We want to be like the nations. And so God said, all right. I'll give you a king, but this is what's going to happen. And we see God's people, the Israelites, becoming more and more like the nations all the time. There's all this political intrigue. There's murder. There's, there's violence on every hand. There's conflict. Uh, it's just a mess. And so now that they need to make peace between these two factions, between the house of Saul and the house of David, Saul's commander has been forced to kill the brother of David's commander. That's not good. And, and we'll see how this plays out as, as we read the rest of the story. And I don't say story in a sense of made up, just the, the narrative, how it plays out. All right, let's do some reading. I'm going to read the first five verses of the third chapter because it's just it's got a bunch of names and I don't want to... Uh, I don't want to burden anybody else with reading all those names. But I think that's important because we see how many wives David has. Now, after I read that, who wants to read chapter 3, verses 6 through 11? All right. We've got Bud reading 3, 6 through 11, chapter 3, 12 to 16. Anybody want to read that one? All right, Shannon. And then we'll do uh, 17 to 21. And pause briefly. So 17 to 21. All right. 
Tom's got that one. Great. Uh, all right, here we go. I'll take off first with the first five verses. Chapter 3 of Second Samuel. Now there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David, and David grew steadily stronger, but the house of Saul grew weaker continually. Sons were born to David at Hebron. His firstborn was Amon, Amnon by Ahinoam, the Jezreelitess. Turn the page. And his second, Chiliab, by Abigail, the widow of Nabal, the Carmelite. And the third, Absalom, the son of Maacah, the daughter of Talmai, king of Geshur. And the fourth, Adonijah, the son of Haggith. And the fifth, Shephatiah, the son of Abital. And the sixth, Ithrim, by David's wife, Eglah. These were born to David at Hebron. Do you see why I didn't want anybody else to have to read that? Verse 6. During the war between the house of Saul and the house of David, Abner had been strengthening his own position in the house of Saul. Now Saul had had a concubine named Rezpah, daughter of Ai. And Ashbosheth said to Abner, Why did you sleep with my father's concubine? Abner was very angry because of what Ishbosheth said had, had, had answered. Am I a dog's head on Judah's side? Question mark. This, day, this very day I am loyal to the house of our father Saul, and of your father Saul, and to his family and friends. I haven't handed over. I have. I haven't handed you over to David yet. Now you accuse me of offensive involvement with this woman. May God deal with Abner, but be it ever so severely if I do not if I do not do for David with what the Lord promised him on oath, and transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and establish David's throne over Israel and Judah. Uh, from Dan to Beersheba, Ishbosheth did not dare say another word to Abner because he was afraid of him. Then Abner sent messengers on his behalf to say to David, Whose land is it? Make an agreement with me and I will help you bring all of Israel over to you. Good, said David. I want to make an agreement with you, but I demand one thing of you. Do not come into my presence unless you bring Michael, daughter of Saul, when you come see me. Then David sent messengers to Ishbosheth, son of Saul, demanding, Give me my wife Michael, whom I betrothed to myself, for the price of a hundred Philistine foreskins. So Ishbosheth gave orders and had her taken away from her husband Palatiel, son of Laish. Her husband, however, went with her, weeping behind her all the way to Behurim. Then Abner said to him, Go back home. So he went back. Now Abner had been with the elders of Israel, saying, Time passed, you were seeking you were seeking for David to be king of Israel. Now then do it. For the Lord has spoken of David, saying, By the hand of my servant David, I will save my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and the hand of, the, of all their enemies. And Abner also spoke in the hearing of Benjamin. Then Abner also went to speak in the hearing of David and Hebron, all that seemed good to Israel and the whole house of Benjamin. 
So Abner and twenty men with him came to David at Hebron, and David made a feast for Abner and the men who were with him. Then Abner said to David, I will rise, I will arise and go, and gather all Israel to my Lord the King, that they may make a covenant with you, and that you may reign over all that your heart desires. So David sent Abner away, and he went in peace. All right, things are looking up, aren't they? We're going to bring the nation back together, aren't we? It's, it's kind of looking that way. And what, I'll use the word precipitated. What precipitated the return of Israel to Judah? How about a concubine? Who put Ishbosheth on the throne? Abner did. <clears throat> but Abner has eyes for Saul's concubine. That's Ishbosheth's dad's concubine. And so he goes into her, and Ishbosheth finds out about this, and he says, Hey, what's, what's up? Going into my dad's concubine. And Abner gets offended, says, All right, you want it that way? So, but overall, it's, it's a good thing for the nations to be united. They're the nation to be united. But what's looming in the background? What's looming in the background is this animosity between Joab and Abner. Actually, it's, it's Joab's animosity. Abner doesn't have any animosity. He, he didn't want to kill Asahel, but he did. So, so that's where we are. Has anything changed since these days, this is about 3,000 years ago. And this is like we're reading a script out of a modern soap opera. It's, it's the same stuff. Any observations, any questions? What's one of the conditions, however, that David sets? He wants, he wants Michael. Now, based on the law, he can't be married to her anymore. Why? She was with another man. It would be one thing if, if they had separated and, and she'd never been with anybody else, but she has. And so now, man, but that's his, that's what he says is going to be his condition. Got to bring Michael back. And so what does Michael's husband, Michelle, however you want to pronounce her name, what's her husband think about that? Man, he's, he's following, he's crying. Man, I, I love this woman, I care about her. But what does Abner say? He said, go home, boy. Just, just get on back home. It's like, where's the compassion in any of this? It, it's almost as if that was thrown in there to show us there wasn't any. So when we later see David showing compassion to Mephibosheth, it's like, wow, breath of fresh air. Somebody's being nice to somebody else. Somebody's showing kindness. Things haven't changed much. All right, let's drop down to verse 22. Uh, I'll read it, 22 through 25, so we can see how things are shaping up here. What? Oh, yes, where were we? 
we always talk about David and you know how, how he's after God's own heart and, and he talks about other other people like Saul and all them, you know, and they were horrible people in God's sight. And I know it was because David had faith, but I mean I mean he sit here and gets all these concubines, which Deuteronomy forbids. Says don't multiply wives for yourself to forge alliances. And then it's all just to his own glory. Now I know it's not good, but but it's still it's like I mean, if if we were to if he would have been a, if we were to be judging him, mm-hmm. you know, we'd be going, what's it, what's his leader doing? You know, I mean, how can he be our leader? He's doing all this stuff. Right. Right. He forbids that, you know. I don't know. It's just sometimes it. I mean, it, it comforts me because I'm like, well, I'm kind of like him, you know. It's like I go to church and I do this, I do that, you know. Hey, over here, you know, over here, and uh, I'm trying to fix this and that, and, you know. I'm doing stuff just as bad. It seems like, you know, I don't know. You know, I, I have my own doubts about certain things that, you know, even I do, you know. How much money can you save for retirement? How much can you do? You know, it's like, you know, it's, and you read the New Testament, you, have, you feel like your life's a contradiction a lot to God. You know? All the time. So I'm just turning to him and saying, be merciful to me and fix me, you know, in certain places that, I, you know, I work on this, but I'm not working on that, you know. So anyway, I just thought, like, okay, I just see a lot of days, you know, and to me, this is why David's one of my favorite characters. It's not necessarily, and nothing against David, but it's not necessarily because of his character. It's because when I, when I read about him, I'm saying, all right, maybe I'll make it. <clears throat> if he was this way and he did all that stuff, and where was his compassion for for? Michael's new husband. I know, yeah, well, sure, you kind of got a right to her, but yeah, yeah. Anyway, there's, it, there's bad blood between them anyhow. And how many wives does he have, and he's going to get more concubines? Like you're saying, it's, oh, man. But I wasn't there. I, I, I'm only reading what God has provided for us to know. But it, it sure gives me... Deuteronomy 17, 17. Neither shall he multiply wives, or said, for his heart will turn away, you know? Yeah. Yeah, it, things are a mess, Bob. Husbands, I mean, all the wives and the sons and everything else. This causes him no end of frustration for the rest of his life. Absolutely. Why do you think that in Timothy and Titus it says that the elders should have only one wife? <laughs> Might be more more facets to that wisdom than one. You cannot depart from the instruction of God and not pay some kind of a price. It's just the way it works. He he sets the line and he says, This is how I want you to walk. Jesus said there's two ways, one's broad. Leads to destruction. The other is narrow, and we're seeing a lot of stuff in David's life that's that's not on the narrow. But still, it's a man after God's own heart. How, how is this? Well, it, it's got to be the fact that David's always coming back to God. He's always returning. He's always repenting when he's called on the carpet for his sin. That that's the way he is. He always wants to be with God. Shannon, when the ark was taken from Shiloh. Was the tabernacle destroyed because none of this, do you ever hear them refer to the law of Moses? You never hear them referring to the tabernacle. 
There seems to be no worship at all or any kind of reference to God or the law. I mean, it's like the whole Moses system has been forgotten, thrown about already. Right. And so I, I, when you went over there, <clears throat> I'd read somewhere, I didn't know if you knew if the temp, tabernacle at Shiloh had been destroyed at this time or because the ark was staying in a guy's house. Right. So I was you, just, you read scholars, scholars, so many of them that I've read say, oh, yeah, the tabernacle was destroyed. The Philistines came and destroyed it. But I'm looking for where, where in the text of Scripture does it say that? And there's no evidence in Scripture that I've found that that's what happened. The ark is there. And there must be a tabernacle of some sort because later on when David does move into Jerusalem, he will say, here I am in a, in a wonderful house. And where's the ark? It's in a tent. So there, there's got to be something there uh, that sounds like the tabernacle. And I would think that if the Philistines had overrun the tabernacle and destroyed it, that the ark would have been taken again. But what did they experience last time they took the ark? I, I would think those guys, the last thing they'd want to do is mess with the ark. And if that's where the ark was in that tabernacle, I think they wouldn't want to mess with that. So scholars can say what they want. Uh, by the way, not all scholars say that. Some, some say, like I've determined, well, there's no biblical evidence for it. But, but who knows why it ever left Shiloh. It was there at Shiloh for how long? 369 years. So, Billy? Chapter 6, we're going to find out about the ark returning to Jerusalem. In chapter 6, verse uh, 7, we find out it's in Obadiah's uh, kitty after three months there at his household. Right. So it's not destroyed yet. Right. right. But, how, you know, where, where's the chain of events that brought the ark to that point? There's, there's some information, I wouldn't say lacking, but it's hard to follow the chain at this point. Bob? Hey, he pulled that ark out of the tabernacle to bring it to the army. You know, so that's where it left the tabernacle. You know, but, but, it, but it did not go back. <clears throat> Somehow, some way, it it made it back to Jerusalem. Because by the by the time we get to David talking about I want to build a, a house for the ark. They know it's there. So there's a, I seem to remember about three places where it was. But at any rate, did the Philistines destroy the tabernacle? I, I would not say that they did because I can't find that in scripture. Uh, I think that's a conclusion that some have reached because it, it didn't stay at Shiloh. But to me, the evidence is pointing in a different direction. Good question. Thinking about these things as we go along. Any other comments or observations? All right. I'm going to start reading at verse 22. Behold, the servants of David, chapter 3, verse 22. Servants of David and Joab came from a raid and brought much spoil with them. But Abner was not with David in Hebron, for he had sent him away, and he'd gone in peace. Abner was there. David and Abner conferred. Everything's looking good. David sends him away in peace. Joab came to the king and said, what have you done? Behold, Abner came to you. Why then have you sent him away? And he's already gone. 
So David's trying to make peace with Abner and bring the nation together. And Joab is saying, this guy's your enemy. We need to kill him. Abner came to you. Why then have you sent him away and he's already gone? So you know, Abner, the son of Ner, that he came to deceive you and to learn of your going out and coming in to find out all that you're doing. Is that what Abner had done? No, Joab is wrong. But he doesn't listen to his king. We want a king so we can be like the nations. We're not going to listen to him. We're going to do our own thing. But that's, so that's, that's where Joab is. So Joab sends messengers, it says in verse 26. Joab came out from David. He sent messengers after Abner. They brought him back from the well of Sirah, but David did not know it. And so when Abner returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside into the middle of the gate, speak with him privately, and there he killed him. Struck him in the belly so that he died on account of the blood of Asahel, his brother. So, so this wasn't anything about defending David's throne or the kingdom. This was all about personal revenge. When David heard it, he said, verse 28, I and my kingdom are innocent before the Lord of the blood of Abner, the son of Ner. And then read this, wow. May it fall on the head of Joab and on all his father's house, and may there not fail from the house of Joab one who has a discharge or who has, is a leper or who takes hold of a distaff or who falls by the sword or who lacks bread. Wow, that's quite a curse. So Joab and Abishai, his brother, killed Abner because he had put their brother Asahel to death in the battle of Gibeon. So it says that twice, so there can be no doubt as to what Joab's motives were. This is all about revenge. It had nothing to do with this guy spying out the country. It was all about him taking personal revenge. So David mourns Abner in the last part of chapter 3. Just as he mourned Saul and Jonathan, just as he's mourned Samuel. But it's all done now. There's no way to fix it. Verse 37 of chapter 3. All the people and all Israel understood that day that it had not been the will of the king to put Abner the son of Ner to death. And then the king said to his servants, Do you not know what a prince and a great man has fallen this day in Israel? I'm weak today, though anointed king, and these men, the sons of Zeruiah. Who are the sons of Zeruiah? That's Joab and Abishai. They're too difficult for me. May the Lord repay the evildoer according to his evil. Wow. So does he fire Joab? No, he doesn't fire Joab. Joab goes on to be his faithful captain of his military. And chapter 4 is where we will read about David. Uh, bringing Mephibosheth into the house, but not before something else happens. Let's see, I need a reader for the first three verses. Who wants to do some reading? Anybody ready to read? All right, Rich. Now when Ish Bosheth. Saul's son heard that Abner had died in Hebron, he lost courage, and all Israel was disturbed. Saul's son had two men who were commanders of bands. The name of one was 
Bana, and the name of the other, Rekba, sons of Rimmon and Berahite, of the sons of Benjamin, for Beroth is also considered part of Benjamin. And the Berahites filed to Gidim and have been aliens there until this day. Did you say one through three? Yeah, the first, the first three. Okay. And I apologize, I didn't realize all those crazy words in there. But so Ishbosheth is who? This is Saul's son. He hears Abner's dead, and he loses courage. Why would he lose courage? He, he's not depending on God. He's depending on Abner. Abner was his captain, captain of his army. Abner's the one who put him on the throne. Now Abner's dead. And so he goes weak in the knees. And all Israel was disturbed. That's big news. So Saul's son, another one of uh, Saul's sons, had two men who were commanders of bands, Biana and Reshab. So they're, they're half-brothers to Ishbosheth. But it says in verse 5, the sons of Rimon, the Berethite, Reshab and Ben, departed and came to the house of Ishbosheth in the heat of the day while he was taking his midday rest. They came to the middle of the house as if to get wheat, and they struck him in the belly. Reshab and Beana, his brother, escaped. Why would they do that? Well, keep reading. They brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron, and they said to the king, Behold, the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy, who sought your life. Thus the Lord has given my lord the king vengeance this day on Saul and his descendants. <clears throat> so David throws him a big party, bends medals on him. What's he do? He references back to that Amalekite who told him about Saul and Jonathan. How did that guy turn out? Killed him. So he says in verse 11, How much more when wicked men have killed a righteous man in his own house, on his bed, shall I not now require his blood from your hand to destroy you from the earth? David commanded the young men. They killed them and cut off their hands and feet. Hung them up beside the pool. Man, this is vicious stuff going on. They took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the grave of Abner at Hebron. Now we skipped over verse 4. This is where we're introduced to Mephibosheth. Chapter 4, verse 4. Jonathan, Saul's son, had a son crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the report of Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. What report? Reports of their death. His nurse took him up and fled, and it happened that in her hurry to flee, he fell and became lame, and his name was Mephibosheth. So we're introduced to Mephibosheth, the little lame boy, lame at five years old. 
His nurse heard the news about Jonathan and Saul. She panicked. She grabbed him up to run. Well, it doesn't say that took him up and fled. And it happened that in her hurried flee, he fell and became lame. It doesn't say that she fell. It says he fell. Anyway, whatever the details are, he became lame. Somehow he was injured, and now his feet don't work. And this is Saul's son. Actually, it's Saul's grandson, son of Jonathan. So think about that. This is Jonathan's son, and Jonathan was David's best buddy. And, and here he is. He's left. Ishbosheth is dead. Saul's dead. Jonathan is dead. The house of Saul is, is fading fast. But this one young man is left. All right, probably wouldn't do for since we've had a bell to get into chapter 5. Uh, anything you want to go back and, and talk about in the last few minutes of class? Any observations you want to make? Any uh, Anything? If not, we'll just go ahead and quit here and be prepared to start in chapter 5 next week. I also appreciate, Shannon said you all behaved well when he was or when I was gone, so I want to commend you for that, and I'll take any advantage. It's good to be back.